Hey, it's Sean Fennessy, one of the hosts of the Prestige TV podcast. HBO's Barry is back for a fourth and final season. And that means I'll be back recapping the show with co-creator and star Bill Hader to dive deep on the themes, scenes, and major moments in the series. Bill will provide insight into how every episode was made and why it's ending. New Prestige TV Barry recaps will go live every Sunday night when the episode ends. So make sure you're subscribed to the Prestige TV podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to another episode of the Ringers NBA Draft Show. My name is Kevin O'Connor, and joining me, as always, is the Ringers' Jay Kyle. Man, what's going on, man? How you doing today? Not too much, Kev. I'm up and uh, feeling good, rearing to go, Re- rearing to talk about some draft stuff. I know we're going to hit a lot of different topics because uh, it's uh, it- it's a busy time of the year. I know I say that every single time, but there's uh, there's a lot going on here on all levels. Absolutely. So we're recording this Tuesday afternoon, uh, the morning after the Kings went up. 2-0 on the Warriors. And so we're going to talk about some of the young guys that we're seeing league-wide right now throughout the postseason. Not a lot of them, Kyle, um, but in last night's game, Davion Mitchell, former Baylor player, champion, lottery pick, pivotal role against Stephen Curry. What did you see from Davion Mitchell as a small guard with the role that he played? Ball pressure. Uh, that's what we saw. We saw that a little bit last year too in the playoffs. I, I think it, I, I think what this kind of throws me into, and I, I was somebody that was a little. I remember having the conversations with you and Sharks and Bill a little bit here and there that you know the four of us kind of were talking about that pick that it kind of got out that maybe they were thinking about taking him, and then when they did, and I think Mitchell was projected in the top ten throughout that season, if I'm not mistaken, like. It's pretty consensus accepted, right, that he was going to go that high. Do you have a good memory for that one? Yeah, I mean, I think he was projected lotto pick throughout the year. Uh, You know, he kind of solidified himself. I mean, it was an unbelievable offensive season for him on top of his defense. Uh, Granted, the offense hasn't translated. You know, I believe we talked about it on a show earlier this year. That looked like an outlier year for him as a shooter. He's still only 31.7% throughout his career. Granted, he did have the big three pointer. That was a dagger last night. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he basically has stayed on the floor. Um, we, we know, and, and I guess it's a question of like, uh, we're always having this conversation about whether or not sure people have a reason to live, you know, to quote the, the, the famous Randy Newman song there. But I mean, like in the <laughs> NBA, <laughs> you know, they have plenty of reason to live, but do they have plenty of reason to be drafted or valued as NBA players? And I, I'm looking at just, you know, he played, uh, you know, almost 30 minutes last night and had 14 points. Um, he and went five for 10. As long as he could hit open shots, I mean, you need somebody out there, especially if you're playing the Warriors, you need somebody with a lot of stamina to chase him. You're going to throw multiple guys at him because, A, you're going to have to do some switching, as we know. You're going to have to have just, People who can get low and get on the ball and bother ball handlers. I think in that sense, if he can hit open shots and provide that, you know, he's coming off of the bench. I guess the question is like whether or not a player that size can be like the focal point of a team. Who's the most successful? Pl- I mean, like Chris Paul, you know, Trey Young, I would say is probably six feet, you know, generously there. Isaiah Brunson's Thomas not- for a short while with the Celtics. Allen Iverson, you know. Being the focal point, I guess, of an offense anymore, it's a lot harder. It's kind of like you're either uh, those guys are are harder to come by. But I guess the question is kind of what separates them, right? If you're thinking about a Brunson, if you're thinking about a Chris Paul, what do you think? What would you say separates guys like that? And it, what 
because th- those feel like rarities to me these days. Strength being one of them. You know, I think the, you know, great strength um, in addition to their great playmaking and feel that can overcome their lack of size as offensive creators. I mean, you know, Brunson might be, you know, six feet, six one, whatever he, you know, actually is, but he's strong on drives to the rim, has excellent feel for the game, good fluidity and footwork as, you know, Chris Paul, you know, he's called the point god, point god for good reason, right? And uh, like, I think with those types of players, that's what separates them from a Davion Mitchell, who totally different category of player. He's not running the offense for them at all by any means. He's more of a utility player, but we see the value in that in Mitchell that even if he doesn't, you know, even he's not meeting expectations. Like, let's just be clear. He's the ninth pick in the draft. You hope for a guy that you invest in at that point that they're able to be more of an offensive presence. But in certain matchups against Stephen Curry, I mean, like there are so many possessions where, you know, Steph gives up the ball and Mitchell's just sticking to him like glue off ball, fighting through screens, making things hard on Stephen Curry. Granted, on ball, sometimes the Kings were sending two towards Steph or shading a second guy towards him. It, it just felt like Davion Mitchell, though, more than anybody on that Kings defense was responsible for, you know, Steph needs to shoot more. Let's just make that clear. You know, mm-hmm. 20 and 21 shots in games one and two. He, he needs to be closer to 30, 35, in my opinion. They really need to, to feed Stephen Curry, regardless of who's defending him. But Mitchell is one of the reasons why those shots are harder to come by with the ball denial. Yeah, and it's interesting. To, he seems like a pretty perceptive player defensively, like he's engaged and he's thinking. I mean, earlier in the season, I saw an interview where he was talking about guarding Steph. It may have been last season, but he was talking about um, the hard lessons that he learned from the level of focus and attention to detail. I know we saw that clip that clip of JR talking about Del Vadova defending. And if you if you want somebody in your team that's going to be a nice sort of mentor for what it's like to guard Steph in this type of situation, Del Vadova is is right there serving you in the, on that front. But he was he made a comment that and I'm not trying to make this more about Steph, but I mean that's the reality is that like when superstars are in the league, you have to think about them because that's what's there. That's what you have to build around. But um I guess I guess the question is like, you know, you mentioned like expectations year to year. I mean, I guess that changes what what what's there dictates what our expectations really should be, because the talent isn't the same every single year. So, um, you know, at the ninth pick, I'm just looking at some of these guys. I mean, I'm sure that if they could go back, do you think the Kings would have rather, you know, would they have taken a Trey Murphy? Would they have taken a Quentin Grimes, a Chris Duarte? Um, I don't know. Do you think that there was another move there? Just looking at that 2021 draft and this and this draft class in general, I feel like in this this playoff, these playoffs have been a little shaky, right? I mean, overall, this class, um, it, I don't know. What, which question from that would you rather take? I asked you two questions, I guess. In well, I, I mean, I think first, you know, for the Kings, you, know, you look at the guys taken after him, Zaire Williams at 10. James Booknight, 11, Josh Primo, 12, Chris Duarte, 13, Moses Moody, 14, Corey Kispert, 15, Alperen Chengun, 16, Trey Murphy, 17. I think that's probably the answer right there, Trey Murphy. Mm-hmm. Um, Trey Murphy, a guy who has continued to exceed expectations for the Pelicans, is one of the better shooters in the league, you know, a great at-rim, you know, finisher, you know, lob threat. And, you know, solid defensively. He's not a stopper by any means, but he's solid. I I think that'd be of that next group of players who are realistically the guys you'd target. Uh, I think Trey Murphy at that point in the draft. But you're right, though, Kyle. I mean, you know, Mitchell in in a very, you know, specific role, you know, is doing his job containing or making things tough on Steph Curry. You can't contain Steph Curry. I shouldn't say that. He's making things harder for him to, to generate offensive opportunities. Other than that, I mean, we're recording this before game two of Cavs-Knicks. Mobley might go for 50 tonight. I'm doubtful. Um, but Mobley, we saw his struggles, you know, on the boards. Julius Randle completely overpowering him. Um, some of his offensive limitations as well. Jonathan Kaminga, seventh pick in that 2021 class. A total zero for the Warriors and, and their two games so far, which, you know, when you get Jordan Poole struggling, you got Jonathan Kaminga struggling. You know, you're not getting a lot of production from Dante DiVincenzo. 
it puts a lot of pressure, man, on Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green to be the sole sources of creation. And I think for the Warriors, this really speaks to just how much their decisions in the draft have been a whiff for them. And that's why they're like, they win the title last year. <laughs> so it's weird to say that, but it was not because of their youth. It was because of the old regime, the old leaders, the former big three, not because of, you know, the home run swing on young guys. That whole thing is just interesting to me. And I think I've harped on this on the show before is that like, it's just an odd shift for them to go from building the thing that turned into a dynasty and their thinking that went into those picks early on. If you think about what they did from like 2009 to 2014, they picked a lot of guys that kind of forecasted. Well, they didn't forecast it because maybe they didn't know it was coming. Maybe they did. They knew what they had in Steph Curry and they built intuitive, you know, a roster that had intuitive players around him that were smart and two-way players too. And then um, if you think about what they did in their like two timeline approach, it was just totally different. Like they picked guys that weren't as high in feel. They were more physically imposing project kind of players and the players that they passed up specifically in that draft, I think. You, you never Wagner. I mean, yeah, Wagner. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge one. He's a guy that would interface like immediately with what they were trying to do. I mean, can you imagine um, if they had Franz Wagner right now instead of John the Kaminga? I mean, my goodness, he he would be one of the you know he like look he is one of the best young players in the Magic, but if he were on Gold State, teammates with Stephen Curry, I, I just can't imagine the amount of attention he would receive, how much of a a name he would be understood as you know re- even from casual fans with his talents as a two way player. Oh my God! And you think about this is like the basis that we criticize that we like criticize Franz on now is one where he's in a primary role. So we're just like, well, you know, he's not quite, he's not quite efficient as a decision maker in the pick and roll at 610. And then we're like, so it's harder on him because he's on a younger team. But imagine if he were like brought along in a lesser role where he was like doing things that he was efficient at, you know, maybe he, maybe he sprinkles a little bit of, he seasons a little pick and roll over your Golden State offensive casserole. But I mean, he's going to be cutting. And that's the thing I think that's really killing them. Like I said, not trying to turn this into a Warriors thing, but like it's, that's killing them. Like they're not getting like the downhill pressure that the Kings are if you watch them on the other end. And I think, I think intuitive kind of players, like Kaminga couldn't stay on the floor, dude. I wrote down like he, I think he only played like eight minutes total and he packed that eight minutes with like just, uh, just a tour de force of defensive mistakes, Kev. I mean, he was like late rotating. He got burned off the dribble by Fox, which isn't a unique thing to have happen to you in the NBA, but he had weird closeout angles on Fox where he let him Mm -hmm. go left, like let Fox get right in the lane. I mean, He didn't get over screens with Malik Monk. Uh, He just, he had a really, it's brutal that like for what they need that they can't get him on the floor because he can't, you know, he can't keep up with like the the quality decision making that they need on defense in particular. It's as if you mentioned the Warriors mindset and how they, they changed from guys with feel to more pure athletes. It's almost as if they felt like our system can accommodate any player and we can make it work. So let's take the guy that we feel we perceive as having the highest upside, the greatest raw skill, and we can turn that guy into something special. Like with James Wiseman at the number two pick, you can see right now the the, the logic in taking Wiseman. I wouldn't have done it. It was I thought it was the wrong choice on draft night, but when he got drafted there, I was like, okay, the Warriors are drafting a big to combat all these great bigs that these te- up-and-coming teams are having. And you see the Kings, the way they're able to get into the lane, the way they're crashing the boards, creating second-chance opportunities. Boy, if James Wiseman had actually worked out, that's exactly what the Warriors could use right now in this series. So, like, I get the logic in some of the choices that they made, but at the same time, I mean, that was the risk in doing it, where now you're in this position where, you know, like they win the finals last year and like they have two home games coming up. They could tie this up. So like, you don't want to get too ahead of yourself, mm-hmm. but we are entering a point where those mistakes after their one title uh, coming back are starting to show why this could very well be the last dance for the Warriors. Could be. It could be. And 
these teams that that do extend their windows that do have the opportunity to take one it's rare that you get the opportunity to an extend to extend a window like this and if you look at teams like the spurs you know the bulls did a little bit there with that midway kind of hiccup that they had where they picked up tony tony kukoc that was you know a hell of a pick but obviously but it, it just if you're going, I, if we want to expand it from the Warriors, like the thing that really stands out to me about the players in this draft that I think were undervalued is their defensive sort of mindset, is their defensive savviness. If you look at like Kevin, Quentin Grimes jumped up, is was undervalued. Herb Jones was undervalued. Miles McBride was undervalued. Even Trey Murphy, like we talked about, undervalued. J- Jalen Johnson. He's been kind of getting picked at. I mean, it's been a high bar. He had he had Jimmy Butler picking at him, and now he's got the, this really savvy Celtics team picking at him defensively. But he's a guy who has is a really high feel player and is getting minutes for an Atlanta team in the playoffs. Uh, that one, were you? Have you been surprised by that? The Jalen Johnson thing. I mean, it's nice to see Quinn Snyder incorporating him in a role that makes sense. I mean, I tend to think that, you know, you see Kevin Herter, you know, thriving away from Trey Young. I think DeAndre Hunter will be better away from Trey Young. I think Jalen Johnson will be better away from Trey Young, too, unless Trey ends up, you know, playing the way that he should in a Quinn Snyder offense in motion. I mean, like, can you imagine if Trey Young wasn't such a ball hog and just let Kevin Herter do some of the stuff that he's doing right now in Sacramento if Atlanta had played in a motion system, which was their intent, by the way. I mean, like, I know when they drafted him publicly, they had said, oh, yeah, I mean, we're not trying to build Warriors South here. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to build a system that was involved motion and movement and ball sharing. And instead, it became Rockets, you know, east of Houston, you know, with Atlanta, where it's like their own version of the ball dominant Rockets with all their high pick and roll with Trey Young. And I, I just, I don't know. I think that you would still see Kevin Herter in Atlanta today if they had built a system like that from the beginning. And with Jalen Johnson, it is cool to see him start to do some of the stuff. And his defense has been pretty good. He's arguably the best defender on the Hawks right now. What is that even uh, saying? Well, that's amazing. A low, that's a low bar, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, Deontay tries. And Okongwu is, is, a, is a quality defender, too. Well, I, I, think. Should say, yeah, I should say yeah. perimeter, like, right, play, right. you know. Like, yeah, Okongwu yeah. is, you know, Capella, those guys in their own ways from protectors. And Capella, I mean, uh, and uh, Okongwu's versatility is a big... Um, is impressive as well. It's too bad the Hawks are just so overmatched by Boston because I like some of Atlanta's young players. I do. It's odd how like one weird sort of like stylistic dissonance can disrupt. They just don't, you looked at, if you listen to anybody who talks about the NBA or anybody, I mean, at any, like whether you do it for a living or you just love the NBA, you listen to any, any conversation that I have with, with, with just people in general is, man, I love Atlanta's talent. I love Atlanta's talent. And then you look at it and you're just like, What's up here? Like, why is this? What What's going on here? And I, it's you're right. And I, about about like the way they built this team. And is I was it Trey? Say, Do you agree with me? Yeah, is Trey, it, it, it isn't him. Well, yeah. I mean, partly on offense, I think that like you can't you can't like go into following a template like the Warriors without the sort of like stylistic thing that that implies. Like a player at his size. Like I mean, the thing about Steph is that is the on off ball thing. The thing that Davion Mitchell. That uh, you know, De'Aaron Fox, that Delvadova have all described is like the brilliance and the relentless motor of watching him um, go go on to off, and Trey just doesn't do that. And I know you and I have even talked about on this show uh, about like, well, when's he going to do it? When's he going to do it? We keep waiting and keep waiting, and I just don't think he's that type of player. And I, it's probably just getting to the point where it's unrealistic to expect it, honestly. Well, it's it's a shame. <laughs> it, is. it is. I wondered it, if I kind of like took the the record needle and sat it on a groove because I kind of just like put you in position to grab on Trey's play style. You just went to town. I loved that. I mean, it is it is a shame because you you look at the actual top perimeter players in the league, and this is I think a lesson for any incoming draft prospects. I mean, Trey Young just pulling up the Ringer rankings here. Where do we have Trey Young right now? You guys have Trey twenty third, which yeah. is too high. Um, you should not have him above Tyrese Halliburton. That's insane. Uh, but the guys above him, <laughs> you, you got Donovan Mitchell, who can play on ball and off ball. Devin Booker thrives with and without the ball. Shea Gildas-Alexander, you guys have ranked 10th. Obviously dominant on the ball, but can also thrive off of a Josh Giddy and Jalen Williams and these other guys 
Damian Lillard. You know, like I, I don't expect Trey Young to ever beat Stephen Curry. I don't expect anybody to be Stephen Curry. He's on in a different stratosphere. But Dame is, I feel like, the player that you know these guards can try to emulate. Being yeah. Steph is tough, but being Damian Lillard, he's at least active away from the ball. He doesn't become a non-threat when you take the ball out of his hands. And I think with this year's draft class, granted, I don't. There's maybe not a guy in that mold. Um, you know, I think, you know, Keontae George-ish, but a lot of the guards are non-shooters in this year's class. Is there anybody that comes to mind that you could see as that kind of, you know, on-ball, off-ball guy? Is it Nick Smith, who you really like a lot? He's probably more hypothetical long-term project at this yeah. time. At this, I mean, it, it, you're, you're really kind of leaning on a lot of ifs. I like the, I like the Keontae thing. Um, I mean, yeah, the non-shooting thing kind of implies that these guys are going to have different roles and, and like they're they're not going to fit into that idea of like being the the momentum building piece. You know, the guy the guy that can like come off of an off like a handoff or come off of a, a pin down or something like that. And the defense has to respect them so much uphill. I mean, Jordan Hawkins does some of that, but he has the other parts of it that he's he needs to work on, which is like the downhill finishing the the playmaking stuff we haven't even gotten there yet he just kind of exists as that like orbiting piece no i don't i don't know that there's one that really i mean colby jones maybe someday um i could see him growing into but he's not like a super fast off-ball mover either um but i I think a big thing that we should look at too in in today's nba is just like if you think about the length of the shot clock Defenses are so savvy now that, like, you can't just have guys that are, like, non-shooters, non-playmakers, non-drivers out there. Like, you've got to be able to stretch the—you have to be able to fill the shot clock with, like, good decision-making. And we've seen—that's why the Kings are so freaking hard to guard, man. If you watch them, like, they're such an awesome team to watch because they'll run those teams out there. You know, when you have Fox, when you have—and they're, they're a vision of what Atlanta could have been if, if Fox, Trey had an, been another like, guy, another guy better than Trey, De'Aaron Fox. You guys going to yeah. move Trey down. I mean— <laughs> <laughs> Glad to. Sorry, I continue. Sorry, I, I had, I had. I know <laughs> uh, it's cool. It's cool. Uh, we, we. Um, no, I mean, if you, if you just watch the flow of their offense, they're a good example. Like, if you can orbit around a guy who's a great screen setter, a great passer, they have that three-headed ball handling monster of you know of Fox and Monk and then and then Herder and um, you know, and then you've got your kind of your compartmentalized ISO guy with like what Harrison Barnes can do here and there. I just think that's that's kind of the standard for today. Like you have to force teams to guard you for the whole clock, and I think that's what's uh, that's what we have to be looking at in guards, honestly. And uh, I don't know, but it is interesting that there aren't a lot of shooters like you were talking about among these guards. They are kind of more connectors. Um, it, it's an interesting cluster of talent for that reason. I think. How about with Wallace? I mean, he shoots the ball well statistically this year for Kentucky. Uh, do you do you see that type of you know movement upside with Wallace as a shooter at all? Um, I don't think that he's like stationary or anything. I think he's shown that he can shoot a little bit off the dribble. Um, we just didn't get to see him move within that offense with a lot of, and we see this a lot with Kentucky guards coming out. Just the style of play doesn't really allow it to happen because they don't play you know four out, five out. I mean, it could, he could. I don't know. Are you are you a believer in him in, as a shooter? I think the passing could get there. I think he has more in his bag as a passer than he even got to show at Kentucky. I mean, he's such a you know he has good feel. You know, Case and Wallace does, and I think with him, you know, defensively check like you know he's going to be great on that end of the floor. You know, not even a concern. Spot up shooting. You know, we'll see if that translates after his numbers did fall in the second half of the year. He's not a good free throw shooter. It's weird with him. I mean, I feel like he's got touch, um, but he might be one of those guys where the shot comes and goes. So I don't feel a lot of confidence there with him, which is the thing with this class. It's like, you know, Grady Dick, um, Jordan Hawkins. These are some of the guys where you feel confidence in what their shooting ability will be at the next level. Jed Howard to an extent as well. But there's not a lot of guys in that first round right now where you're, you know, feeling a high level of confidence that they're going to be an elite shooter, never mind at the top. You know, aside from Brandon Miller, Scoot, don't know. I'm in and Osar Thompson, their whole story, you know, through this year with the OTE has been about, you know, well, how can they shoot? No confidence there. Anthony Black, no, not at all. Taylor Hendricks, maybe he's the guy where you do feel some confidence. He shot the heck out of it for UCF this year. 39%, you know, on nearly five attempts per game. 
But there's not a lot of guys this year where you feel that way. By the way, Kyle, you mentioned Monk. How much joy does it give you to see Malik Monk just thriving for the Kings in the postseason right now as a Kentucky guy? I figured, I predicted that the monk was coming when he the went to the Lakers. I love it. <laughs> I thought it was coming when he went to the Lakers because I thought, I was like, LeBron, him next to LeBron makes a lot of sense. I could just see him, you know, this is this is the perfect canvas for him to paint. This is the perfect kitchen for him to cook. It started and there. It really did. It had some momentum going, but I really think that this, this King setup is, he's just improved. I mean, like, I, I, I pulled up some... Uh, if you want to talk about like what it takes, if you if you're that type of a scorer over over the course uh, since he is in his six seasons, he's gradually driven more per 100, which is a function of their offense. But he's also been more efficient, almost 1.2 points per possession. Um, he is passing it more and and drawing more fouls as a driver too, and I think that's been a huge part because he kind of came in as this like spindly shot creator kind of a like a lather score but i think the downhill thing has been really big for him like it's it's a deceptive part and he's been murdering the warriors with that in in these in this series so far and the shot is finally beginning to click for him i mean you you look at his first three seasons in the nba playing for the hornets he's at 32.2 percent from three his last year with charlotte his one year with the lakers and now his one year with the kings he's at 38.1 percent and I, I, I have not, you know, I have no intel on how that happened. Um, but I would imagine for some guys, it's a function of improving strength. You mentioned how he was so lean, you know, and I, I think with him, maybe it's about that. Maybe it's about adjusting to the speed of the game. I um, would have to look in a little bit more closely there. But I think for, you know, you watch the Kings and the Warriors right now, we're spending a lot of time on that game. But I think it's just so many fascinating players. You know, Jordan Poole, you know, this entire season, you look at his numbers on the surface and you're like, okay, yeah, he's pretty good. 20.4 points per game. You know, he's not as efficient as last year, 33.6% from three, four and a half assists per game. But Warriors fans know watching him all 82 games. This guy over the course of the year has made mistake after mistake in clutch moments. He has taken unwarranted shots. His efficiency is down big time. He is a major liability on defense. And you're seeing right now in the postseason against the Kings, Steve Kerr is, you know, he he's throwing darts right now, trying to find guys that can work around Steph and Clay and Draymond. And Jordan Poole is not it. He's getting attacked on defense. He is not helpful on that end of the floor. He hurts your team. But for Poole, he's still only 23 years old. And you think about him long term, still just now in the fourth season of his career. That Malik Monk trajectory for him is kind of possible to follow where Monk becomes a better decision maker, a better playmaker, a more impactful defender. You know, Poole puts up bigger raw numbers than Monk ever has. And yet I feel like the guy, he needs to be learning from Malik Monk with his journey. how, How do you feel about that, Kyle? I think that's fair. I mean, in terms of like just player types, it's pretty similar. I think the big, you know, the big thing for me is that like monks, I I don't know if this is like a fair or like a, a, like a smooth thing to do here, but like, I just feel like personality wise, I I can't put them in the same category, you know? So different. Yeah. Way different. Monk is just a really... I don't know. When you would watch him in college, you'd be like, well, this guy's just kind of messing around. Like, he doesn't feel <laughs> like he's totally serious all the time. Like, he just had that sort of lightheartedness and flair and fun to his game. But he's actually a pretty focused and intense, like, competitor. Like, Monk Monk is like a guy who, um, I don't know. I, I guess we can't act like Poole hasn't done anything in his career, but it, it kind of makes you start to think like, okay, well, was that like a one-off blip where he was playing ar- around a lot more veterans and now he gets that big payday and he gets a little more focus in the offense and they're leaning on him more. Suddenly some of those warts start to shine and show through a little more, you know, and I, I just don't, I don't know. I can't put him in, I can't put him, him and Monk in the same category, like as competitors, honestly. I don't know. Am I way off on that? No, I think you're, Totally right on. And, you know, along, you know, just another related thought to Monk there. I mentioned how he shot the ball poorly his first three seasons in the NBA. Jordan Poole, you know, another guy with good touch, 88% from the free throw line, goes through these major hot streaks from behind the arc. But 33.9% in his entire career from three-point range. 
um, struggling to shoot the ball right now in the postseason. He somebody he is somebody also where you you on the surface he's known as a shooter, but he has not proven yet that he can be a knockdown shooter. Much like Trey Young as well, who has never shot you know a great percentage from behind the arc. Um, that's beside the point. <laughs> Any chance you can get. Huh? <laughs> I can't help myself today, Kyle. I can't. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Before we get to the latest news, Austin Reeves with the Lakers goes from undrafted to a guy averaging 16.5 points per game since the deadline, five assists per game, low turnovers, great efficiency. I liked him in college. Um, like he would have been drafted in the 30s or 40s. Uh, I believe the Pistons it was that wanted him, but his agency said, no, we'd rather go undrafted. So that's why he goes undrafted. But for a guy as a second-round pick or undrafted player, there's no way. Like, I could have seen Austin Reeves be this good this soon. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I'm sure there were people who it's, they're just kind of in your camp. There's always, and there's, there's always this thing with the draft where you you can play it safe and just be like, I'm, I'm not accusing you of this, but I'm saying, I know we, we know how people talk around this stuff. There's, there's this hedging to sort of protect your stance on a given player without committing. And I do this, I mean, I do this too, where you're, where you get queasiness about, putting a number next to their name or saying like, you know, it, no, not at all. <laughs> I mean, I do that every year. <laughs> That's how mistakes happen. <laughs> yeah. I just looked always, it up for what it's worth. I had him 39th on my board. Just well, that's, throw I don't think there. Yeah. that's bad at all. That's pretty good. Actually. I mean, you know, um, so, so the, I don't think that this is what you did at all, but I think there is the thing too, where just people be like, I liked him. It's like, okay, you liked him. We don't really have any way yeah, of yeah. taking you to task about that. But LeBron knew, LeBron knew he says that he'd be this good. Did he, did he predict that? Did he say that he knew Reeves was going to turn into what he, what yeah. he is now? Yeah, he did. He said first Jesus. practice. <laughs> well, I said this on another show that like, you know, it's that point guard thing, man. I mean, like he, he went from being an on-ball player to, you know, he trans, he was an off-ball player at Wichita State. He transfers to Oklahoma, becomes an on-ball player, um, demonstrates that he can do that. And you look at him and you think like, okay, you think six five white guy? That's probably guy's probably like a knockdown three point shooter, but he really has a more <laughs> of a like he has more of a like like a shit stirring like get in the middle draw fouls kind of a game. Like he's very clever about like how he draw like he initiates contact. Um, he and he just has a high threshold of like quality decision making, and he and he competes well. So he's he's an interesting player, I think, in the in like his journey. But I think. It just comes up over and over again, man. It's the, it's the like, have you been a point guard in your past life on some level? Jalen Johnson, man, that's another guy on his AAU team. Mm -hmm. He played a lot of point guard or on his EYBL team. Um, that's something that I just really look for when I'm when I'm looking at players like over and over again. It's a great point. And I think that might be, you know, the, the thing to look at. And when I look at I pulled up the scouting report, 39th, you know, the, the one line summary feels like I hit the nail on the head. Passionate player with a slippery shot-creating style and a knack for coming up in the clutch. <laughs> but it's like with him, you know, he's, it's just hard to know. He shot 31% from three in college. Um, you know, I say in there for the negatives, tries to do too much at times, undersized as a wing, lacks lateral quickness, you know, on defense. But all the positives that were there in college are, Still there in the NBA. I, I think sometimes with the draft, first of all, like it, it is hard to project how guys are going to translate to the next level. It is tough. Like That's why teams make mistakes every year, despite having more intel than anybody on the planet. 
But sometimes I, I think it's it's the guys just are who they are a lot of the time. And, and Austin Reeves has one of those translatable styles. Like he like he makes me think about Malcolm Brogdon, you know, what he was yeah. in college and what he was in college is exactly what he is in the NBA. Just like a more advanced version that's developed. Same with Austin Reeves. He'll continue to, you know, uh, enhance his game to fit in with whatever system he's in. Um, but like a lot of the time, guys just are who they are. How often do you see someone just completely overhaul their game aside from like a Pascal Siakam? Like that Siakam is the outlier compared to most players. I don't even know if overhaul would be the word for him, though. Like we were talking about, that was like something from a, that was just like a blank slate that just matured. It was a zero to one situation. It wasn't, yeah. a one, he, he didn't like, you know, it wasn't like a macro evolution thing where one species became another. another. <laughs> uh, like if you look at like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like a, the common denominator among the players I feel like that you're talking about are like pace dictators, guys that are like that have enough like high quality decision making and ball skills to pair with that. You can have the best mind in the world, but if you can't fucking dribble the ball, it's not going to matter. And if you look at like, you know, Brogdon was that way too, like in terms of he had that game where he dictated the way you played him. And and I worry sometimes about guys that play really fast. If you wanted to nitpick Nick Smith for like for something, that could be it. He needs to slow down. And like um if anything, I think Nick could be falling into that monk, that monk pool kind of ca- category where it's like it might take some time. But um Brandon Pajemski is a guy from Santa Clara that I feel like that is an interesting another player like that, like a lot of ball skills. Like he's played some on ball a lot. That, that's that's one to keep an eye on. But I was trying to think of another another player that has that Reevesy kind of thing going on. Baylor Shireman, I don't know. Um, he's coming back to Creighton uh, this year, though. Uh, I don't know if there's another guy in that like Colby Jones. Colby Jones, yeah, it's like maybe a little bit. Yeah, he gives you some of that like second side creation, about, like. But I don't know about like, you, it's hard to speed him up. It's the shooting thing mm-hmm. that you and I have talked about a lot. It's yeah. like you watch him and he's he's playing at his own pace out there. And I believe in his, I still believe in Jaime. Are, are you still, yeah. are you think he's a first rounder? Yeah, I, I like Jaime. I mean, he's right on the on the bubble for first rounder. But those are the type of guys that we're talking about. We're like, oh yeah, good basketball player. You know, he has all these great qualities. I'll take him 28, 38. Yeah. Right. But those guys, like if you're doing a redraft of, you know, of, of Two years ago for Austin Reeves, he's a lottery pick at this current moment. He might get a hundred million dollars this offseason. That's that's wild. You know? That's you wild. Know? Like those are the type of guys who stick around. And I mean, like, what about Andre Jackson? He officially declared for the draft different type of player. I mean, he's more of a, you know, a, you know, disruptive defensive player, a connective piece on offense, more so than a primary. But he's one of those guys with that that feel that you you think translates to the NBA. Yes, and I, I think that's. But I'm trying to think of guys in the playoffs that like fit his mold, like in these playoffs. Who are the guys that are like non shooters that are really getting significant minutes that aren't bigs? You know, I don't I don't know. Like mm. G- even Giddy's taking like spot up threes, and we're assuming that like he could get to the point where he could evolve into that. But I can't think of a player type that, not that these playoffs are the end-all, be-all, but they are a lens to think about it. Can you think of like a, a like a six seven non-shooter like him? I mean, Jalen Johnson might be a decent example, honestly. Of course, yeah. Johnson's bigger. He's probably more like 6'10", I think. I mean, Okoro, he, I mean, again, recording this before game two, you know, he, he was not good at all in game one. But Okoro is the type of guy that you could see the limitations of somebody who doesn't shoot the ball effectively with the way in game one the Knicks were sagging off him with quickly or Mitchell Robinson or whoever it was defending him. They're just not worried about him, and they're closing out hard and after helping inside and creating tough shooting opportunities for him. It doesn't, like, you need to shoot. Like, it's it's critically important uh, in today's league. So you're right. I I think it's rare to find guys that are non-shooters playing important roles for teams. Uh, Let's move on to Jaron Jackson Jr., Another young guy for the Grizzlies. He wins Defensive Player of the Year. But what's been very impressive with him over the past month or so, pretty much ever since Ja went out um, for his suspension, has been his offensive uptick. 
Uh, I believe you know, over the last month, almost exactly, he's averaging 25 points per game. If you move that, that back closer to the deadline, it's around 22, 23 points per game on pretty good efficiency. He's a guy we're talking about, you know, young players coming into the league, you know, evolving who they are. With Jaron Jackson Jr., you look at him at Michigan State, the defensive ability was clear as day. That's why he's a lottery pick. There's no doubt about what he could be on that end. Offensively, you know, pulling up my scouting report from that year in the 2018 draft, you see glue guy skills. Cuts well, runs the floor hard, finishes with either hand. Shows flashes finishing with power when he has space. Spaces the floor well. Odd shooting mechanics, but it works. Not a lot about self-creation. Predictable when asked to create. Handle gets too loose in traffic, and he tends to drive left. Average touch on post-ups and tough angle layups. Nothing really about his self-creation flashes because he didn't show that at Michigan State. But for the Grizzlies in this series against the Lakers, they're down 1-0. We'll see about Ja on Wednesday night uh, in Game 2 against the Lakers. It seems like there's not a lot of optimism in him returning to the game. According to the latest reports today on Tuesday, he was seen at practice shooting shots with his left hand, not with his right hand at all. Uh, Jaron Jackson Jr., he's the DPOI. You know, congrats to him. But offensively, the Grizzlies might really need him to step up more than he ever has. Uh, yeah, and uh, it, over the course, that's that's an interesting thing to think about, like what he was like in high school and at Michigan State and like projecting, you know, for our purposes, like thinking about guys who haven't totally shown it a lot. I think he was really coming into his body. Like, you know, he has a really, really interesting, unique body. As was said, his wingspan's crazy. His hands are huge. Um, but I mean... The shot, I think we saw some of that. We knew he was going to be like a like a catch and shoot thing could happen for him. Um, we've just seen him develop into he has that body that has elasticity over the off the bounce. We saw him like slowly start to like take it off the dribble a little bit. He's like become a more confident driver more and more. I don't know. Like I think we've got a long way to go for him to become like an offensive one. You know, like for him to like develop like a dynamic enough game where teams are going to start pressuring him, and then you start talking about like you know what kind of a passer can he become? I don't. I don't know if that that's going to rescue Memphis in this in this series. Um, I don't know. Are you are you a believer in that, or what do you think? No, I, I think the Lakers. If Jaws out, this is going to be a quick series. Yeah. Um, but, but like, but but Jackson's improvement is impressive, nonetheless, uh, and um, it does speak to sometimes like we're talking about guys. You know, they're off; they often are who they are. There was that raw little bit of skill that you can see that is beginning to translate, and, and I don't think he is quite where he will be at some point in his career. On, on the mismatch, Verno, I was asking him about. You know, Ja was so passive in that game one at times, even before he got hurt, and, and he said, and this has been the case ever since he returned Chris said he thinks Ja seeing Jaron Jackson perform the way he did offensively while he was out he's been trying to accommodate him more mm-hmm. to let him continue to flourish in ways that he didn't prior where Ja was more dominant with the ball with his decisions and so that 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 seems to be that they're in an adjustment period now as Jackson is blossoming offensively with the increased on-ball opportunities that he was receiving so that's going to be something to watch moving forward in this series. But we don't know with Ja Morant. Um, that's going to be interesting there. Uh, over the weekend, or, or rather on Monday, the NBA broke the ties for the draft lottery and the rest of the first round. The Rockets will have the number two odds over the Spurs. And to be clear, it just means now that the Rockets at worst can have the sixth pick the Spurs could theoretically have the seventh pick, but still those teams, top three, have equal odds. Uh, between the other tiebreakers in the lottery, there's like slight percentage differences for teams moving up. The Pacers have the seventh odds. The Wizards have the eighth. The Bulls have the 11th odds. The Thunder have the 12th. And then the outside the lottery, there are some ties broken as well. But right now, you know, the lottery and draft odds are set. You know, we're about a month away now from the draft lottery on May 16th. That'll be here before we know it, as will the start of the conference finals at that point. Um, Kyle, you know, you look at these teams with the bottom five odds. Every year since the Zion year with the draft, we've seen a team between 7 and 11 move up into the top four. So we have yet to see a team 12, 13, or 14 move up. 
But I'm curious, of those bottom five teams, Dallas at 10, a team that tanked their way out of the play-in, got fined. They have the 10th best odds, a 13.9% chance of moving into the top four. And then you get Chicago giving their pick to the Magic at 11. If that pick is outside the top four, the Magic get it. So if it stays there, it's Orlando's choice. But if it moves into the top four, the Bulls get it. And then you get 12, OKC, 13, Toronto, 14, New Orleans with their own pick. Of those bottom five teams, Dallas, Chicago, OKC, Toronto, New Orleans, is there a team you want to see move up into the top four? Like, who would get you the most excited on draft night if, if their envelope doesn't get pulled up? Like, like who, who are you getting fired up about? Is that a little shimmy you just did there, Kev? I don't know. I mean, I get excited on draft night. I get fired up. (laughs) A lot of nights fun. Is is the shimmy one of your... I'm curious. Are you much of a dancer in general? Are you like at weddings? I'm not a dancer. Okay. Okay. I was just curious. Uh, You did that so so naturally. I didn't know if you kind of had Maybe I got it in me. It just hasn't come out yet. I don't know. Little Mark Madsen, that's for your time, <laughs> Shimmy. Um, I mean, I think for you, you could categorize this into two groups uh, because I feel like the two teams that are kind of wandering desperately here are are these are teams that like have like now kind of. I mean, all five of these teams, if something shook one way or the other, their sort of stance and their like optimism could change. You know, and I know Dallas feels desperate right now, but they have an MVP level player and an all-star level player on their roster. It's like, they're trying to win now. We know that. Um, the, despite the tanking, they're trying to make decisions in the short term that could help them win and not waste Lucas window. So I feel like Dallas and Chicago, both of those teams, I feel like if they moved up, depending, like going by just the age of their roster, I was curious to bounce this off of you. You know, the Chicago thing with the top four protected thing is, is interesting. I'm like, do you think either one of these teams would consider moving the pick, considering their short-term sort of aspirations, and considering the like t- the talent kind of drop off? I feel like in that like four to maybe even three to ten, you know, it could flatten out based on what we've seen. We don't know. Do you think either one of those teams would move it? Because I feel like Chicago, I feel like they could maybe try to make some kind of a move for like a quality rim protector if they get into that space, like to move the pick to somebody that that has a guy like that. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's if a team doesn't have the number one pick, there's a possibility that they could move down, out, you know, trade it for a player. So like Dallas and Chicago, that would apply to. Um, for some of these other teams, maybe not as much. Like Toronto, you move up, you might want to get a Scoot Henderson, you might want to get a playmaking presence. OKC is the team, you know, with the 12th odds. If they were to move up, I'd be so fired up if that happened on lottery night. Like if you see the envelopes come out, tr- New Orleans, Toronto, Orlando, it would mean like, oh my God, OKC, they make the play-in and they finish the year without tanking and the basketball gods reward them. Um, who, like, who, who would make you most excited though, Kyle? Like, who would get you fired up? Is it Dallas because of those implications? Uh, I mean, I... I don't know if like fired up is the is the word just because I mean you just you feel you're stoic you, you, you feel you're, you're unmoved by the moment. No, no, that's not <laughs> what I'm saying. I'm just saying like I don't know that it's exciting like what Dallas is doing. You're you, it just feels like they have their claws on the edge of the cliff and they're like we need something to pull us up. Well, uh, that can I, make but, you excited. But it doesn't mean that it's a necessarily like could. you know a joyous occasion. It could be like ha ha ha. Let's see what happens. That's how well, it's excited. Well, we can kind of l- legislate my emotions some other time, but I, I like it. Would it make <laughs> would it make me happy for our friends that like like the Mavs? Sure, it would. But in like in terms of just like a pure like, I mean, uh, the Oklahoma City's like upside is just fun. Like I, it's a t- I've liked the way they've built this roster. I th- I feel like if they come back with Chet and then they add another piece, like I mean, they're just. I mean, I love young teams. That's always been kind of like I love watching young teams grow and that. That's a lot of what I cover at the ringer, honestly. It's just talking about whether or not those teams are going to ascend. And I think that would be really, that one to me, it just feels like they are ahead of schedule. And if they add the right piece, um, I feel like that's an easy answer. I feel like that's the most, that's the most fun thing that could happen is if they get up there and they add the right piece and then they just keep rolling, you know, because they seem ready. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! On Monday, Jonathan Gavoni of ESPN reported a bunch of new stuff that's going to apply to the 2024 draft. Uh, So starting next year, every prospect is going to be required to participate in the NBA draft combine, or they will be ineligible to be drafted until the draft in which they actually do fully attend and participate in the combine. And what participation means is they're going to have to submit to league medical examinations, share medical history, biomechanical and functional movement testing. They're going to have to participate in the strength and agility testing, so the shuttle run and all that shooting drills, performance testing. Players are also going to have to do team interviews, the media circuits, player development sessions. They will not have to compete in the five-on-five scrimmage, though. And there's, you know, stuff in here. We'll see how agents try to skirt around this. But, you know, Gavoni wrote, players could be unable to participate because of a FIBA club, family tragedy, birth of a child, injury. They will still be required to compete complete those components at a later date ahead of the draft, um, or perhaps even after the draft. I wonder if that could apply, because medical records could still be shared in August or, or September or October, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be interesting to see the way this trade changes the draft process, but I know talking to people around the NBA, they're like, thank goodness. They're long overdue, man, because of how agents would steer medical information and other information to some teams, but not to others. But now everybody's going to get it um, on an even playing field. Yeah, it seems like the kind of class mindset of the NBA of like, it feels like a lot of this CBA has been like aimed at that, you know, aiming, aiming sort of like rule tweaks towards the the teams that are like spending a whole lot or like using their advantage of spending. Maybe they have more. Yeah, they have more of an ability to do that. And, you know, the idea of like just steering players away from markets, some of that is going to be tricky. I can't but it's like. It is a good thing, I think. I think any anything that sort of like spreads the wealth, you know, is good um, so that some of these markets aren't at such a disadvantage on that front. But I, I was wondering, I was the FIBA thing got my mind going. I was like, I mean, we're seeing more and more players kind of stretch the like their their affiliation with countries and be like, oh, yeah, they'll just join teams to be. I, <laughs> I kind of wonder if we'll see that loophole, if we'll see if we'll see like some. Some guys be like, uh, I'm going I'm to go play for the FIBA team. Oh, I'm injured, you know, or just as a way to avoid it. I don't know. What Do you think Do you think teams are, or like agents are going to get really, really creative with how they avoid this stuff? Probably. But it seems like a pretty harsh penalty. You're not able, you're not eligible for the drafts. A lot on the I line. Mean, yeah, there's a lot on the line there, man. It, it'll be very interesting. Well, that doesn't apply until the 2024 class, but that's one year away going to be very interesting to see the way that manifests over the coming year. Kyle, what what do you have going on the rest of this week? I know you have a new podcast launching on Saturday. Yeah, uh, me and me and TP Tyler Parker are going to be doing some reacting to uh to the playoffs. Um and that call them that TP. will be Is that <laughs> you call them on the regular? Is that a normal thing? Yeah, just here come and out there. just now. No, no, I say it. I say it every once in a while. I call him TP. I was going to say you, I You hope, ever do I, TPing houses back in your teen years or anything like that? Oh, uh, a couple times, a couple times. Yeah, I was yeah, a pretty same. good kid overall. How about you? <laughs> yeah, I have. Oh, oh. <laughs> I love whenever you get that intense look in your eyes and that big smile. I'm just like, what? <laughs> what? What don't I know right now? <laughs> was this a frequent thing, Kev? Were you like, were nah. you a house egger or anything? No, no, I would never egg a house. That's terrible. <laughs> a little rain. It's off of there. No big yeah, deal. Nah, no no harm true. done. That's true. I shouldn't say it's terrible. There's worse things you could do. Don't want to overuse the word terrible. TPing, I'm sure some people think that's terrible. But around Halloween time, you know, maybe other times of the year too. I forget exactly, but my friends and I would go around doing that sometimes um, back in the day, the high school years. 
we weren't huge pranksters, but I mean, we would like, um, one of our favorite things to do, this is terrible. I can't, <laughs> I can't believe we did this. Um, I had some friends that like, we would go through the drive through. We would drive to Bardstown, which is just a town, like not where we're from. So like, we wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be immediately like, that's Kyle. That's that. like, the, you know, we wouldn't be like ID just on site, but we would go through this drive through and the, the person working when you're a teenager, you're not, I would never do this now just cause like, I'm not mean to service. Industry you're like, people I would never do this now, but I did it last Thursday. No, uh, I would never do, <laughs> I've learned never my lesson. Service industry people. Um, but they would ask us what we would want and, uh, we would, we'd be like, I want to, and then we would blow an air horn into the, into the intercom, oh which, my is, God. <laughs> which is, which is a oh, horrible gosh. thing to do. It's a horrible thing to do. <laughs> but it was in that Jackass era. With, that's yeah, not yeah. even like, I think we missed the branding on Jackass because Jack, that's not what Jackass was. That was like putting yourself on the line. This was more like at someone else's expense. So not the coolest prank to play. Um, I don't know. We did all kinds of shit like that. My buddies, they did crazy stuff after I even graduated and left. Like they would, uh, I had a lot of friends in the great below me and they would like, they had a key to our high school. I think the statute of limitations oh is passed on this. I don't know if they, the powers that <laughs> be knew this, but they would like sneak in and like, I, like our shop had like a, uh, like a go-kart in it. And they would like take the go-kart oh and ride goodness. it around the school. Like at, after, and like in the middle of the night and like they did some crazy stuff that I wasn't involved in, but I would always hear stories about it. <laughs> Things that I wasn't involved in. You were the one with the key. <laughs> I didn't have the key. I wasn't a part of it. I just would I'm always kidding. hear about it. But yeah. What were you like in high school, Kyle? Like, who were you? Were you a cool kid? Were you a nerdy musician? Like, well, who were you in high school? You friends with different groups? Oh, oh yeah, very much so. I, w yeah. I was definitely the, you know, I think playing sports, like, you know, I played basketball all the way through school and you were always going to be like cool crowd adjacent if you played sports, mm -hmm. you know? So I always knew those people, but I was definitely a, a You were a, a jock. You, you were pushing me into the lockers. I was never a bully, you know, I was never a bully, but I was, oh, I was friends with everybody. The music thing kind of pulled me. So I was like, at one point I was like a, a, a captain on our like basketball team and I was the president of the band. So I was all over the place. And then, but I was wow. in drama and stuff too. President I was pretty, of the band? Of our band. Yeah. I mean, if you were a senior, you were, you could be band president. It wasn't, a, it wasn't that big wow. deal, but. You were um, cool, Kyle. I was, I was rounded, I would say. Uh, I was, I, I think, I think that's, that's a positive though. I think at public school, I think you get some of that like social limberness. It's good for you, I think. I, th I hope, I hope my son gets to do that. Jesse Lopez says in our Zoom chat, king of the nerds and the jocks. <laughs> I mean, you. you can, you can see some of that in, in the stuff I make. I mean, some of the just like hopelessly nerdy shit that I unearth <laughs> when we're talking about basketball. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't do it any other way, man. I enjoy it. How about you? Were you, you, you were, you were bullied? Is that, was that the one uh, I got there? A little bit. Freshman, freshman football year, I definitely was for sure. I remember getting held up to the locker once my freshman year by this kid and like it was like, you know, the, his the, name. You want to say I know, I know his name <laughs> and I won't say it. Um, but, I remember he held me up to the locker and I just started laughing and, and it was like this thing out of a movie. I was like, I couldn't believe I was in that moment. I just started laughing and he had the most perplexed look on his face as he did it. Oh, uh, you were just <laughs> laughing at the cliche-ness of it? Like it the, was, like, yeah, it was comical to me that this buffoon was doing that. Um, and still <laughs> this to this day. You. <laughs> <laughs> what does not surprise you that that's how I would react? I don't think you picture you. I didn't picture you as a fighter. I just pictured you as no, like I'm not. I don't know the things that you're unbothered by. Sometimes I've never like, been in a Kevin fight. Is his own I, bird. I've, I've never been in a fight in my life. The closest I've been was in high school, and like one of my friends wanted to fight. Like it was this whole thing. He threw a chair and all that, <laughs> and he came over wanting to fight me. And I like said, "Dude, stop. We're friends. Like stop." And I defused it and. Nothing happened. I've never been in a fight, and I would prefer never to be in a fight. I don't see the re the point. I, I think I've thrown like one punch yeah. in my life. You knock him yeah. out. You make the best of it. No, it was a. It was just sort of a glancing blow. I don't. I was never. I was always kind of like, like an NBA fight. You know, just sort of. 
you know, I got hit in the face a few times in basketball. Oh, wow. But I mean, like, I, I was always the like kind of chirp, chirp, chirp to the to the precipice of disaster and then like diffuse. Like I was real, pretty good at that. Um, I don't know. I, I definitely a lot of like tense conversations that like I got to you get to the edge of it and you're like, OK, back off now. And, I, you know, you get good at that. I think if you're a talker, if you're a, mm. I was I was getting under people's skin. I used to do this thing in varsity practice where um, I was telling one of my friends the other day, I was like, it's amazing. I didn't get punched. Is that like uh, I would just basically make some comment on their closeout or something like that. I'd be like, going to have to do better than that. Like things, you know, I would say, you're chopping like your that. feet too much, <laughs> bitch. No, I mean, no, I mean, I mean, you know, you better get out. You better get your hand up. And I remember one time this dude, who was a big muscle bound upperclassman on our, our team. He goes, what the fuck did you say? Like screamed at me. And, and like, I was like, okay, I better stop doing this. Cause he could have just squished me and broke for, me in for half. For criticizing anyway. his closeout technique. I was talking shit. I mean, it was, or I would say people's name after I hit a three over them. I, I did a lot of stuff, Kevin. I was I was a chirper. I was a chirper. Yeah, I, I'm I'm still a chirper to this day on Xbox uh, playing <laughs> Call of Duty Warzone. But that's that's another story for another day. You can watch my Twitch stream if you want to see me talk trash, which I have not streamed in a bit. But I'll be back again soon. Busy time. No time for that stuff. Yeah, right? no You'll time for that up. right now. It's playoff basketball time. It's draft season, and we'll be back again. Next Wednesday, Kyle, talking more drafts, more playoff, young guy talk, and whatever else comes up, including your high school bully days. <laughs> I don't even. I never know what I'm we're kidding. going to talk about at the end of the I'm show. Kidding, I've like okay. divulged. I I basically incriminated my my good friends on this yes. show. Uh, I which was just a long time ago. <laughs> told stories that made me look like a jerk. Uh, no, yeah, you, so were, you doing, weren't a jerk. No, nothing wrong with trash talk. I love trash talk. It's part of competition. I do too. I still do it. I'm, I'm acting like I'm like reformed. I'm not. I still do it. But no fights. No fights though. Yeah, no fighting. No fighting. Defuse those. Well, Kyle, hope you have a good rest of your week, man. You too. Good to see you, man. Thank you so much to Jesse Lopez for producing today's episode of the Ringers NBA Draft Show. Please do us a favor. Subscribe. Subscribe to the Ringers NBA Draft Show wherever you get your podcast. It really does help us out. Hope you have a good rest of your week. Enjoy the playoffs.